today we come to the book of Habakkuk. It's a very small book, three chapters. Pretty obscure. Most people have no idea why the book is there. Though there are some verses that are often used by preachers and quite often a little out of context. You know, it's part of our even preachers like to play the lucky dip thing, you know, pick a verse and make a whole sermon of it. And often the verse, the text is taken out of context. Now, this is a very unique prophetic book. It's found in the prophecy section. Now, normally prophetic books speak, God speaks to a prophet who speaks to people. So, basically, the prophet warns people. But in this book, very different. Prophet addresses God. He never actually speaks to people. He complains to God. He laments to God. It's almost like lamentations. Remember when we learn about lamentations, it's a man in a way bringing God's attention to the suffering and the problems around complaining to God, why are you not doing something about this? Right? So Habakkuk actually is getting God's attention. He's asking God questions. He's asking God for answers. Right? So it's a very different kind of prophecy. Now, Habakkuk lived at the time in this in Judah, Southern Kingdom, where the condition was so bad. There was so much corruption from top to bottom. With the corruption came violence, strong people taking advantage of weak people, to the extent that it was not even safe to walk in the city. Because people would mug you, the strong guys would rob you. So it was violent, unsafe. And so Habakkuk basically argues with God. God, if you are good, and if you are powerful, then why do good people suffer? And why do evil people prosper? Now this is the question that is asked over and over again. If God is not good, then there's no issue. There's nothing to ask. If God is not powerful, then you, you can't do anything about it anyway. But we who believe that God is good, holy, who hates evil, and God is powerful, why is he not doing something about the suffering we see around us? So basically, this is the struggle of Habakkuk. Now, most of us have this in our minds, and we don't really bring it up. We're too polite to ask God. We feel it's not right to question God. We Asians in particular, anyone superior to us, even if we have a question to ask, we don't ask the question because it's like, who am I as a subordinate to question someone? above me, let alone God. That's way too high to question. But you know, when we read something like Habakkuk, we realize God allows this. 
God put it down. That lamentations, God put it down. It is how we process our thinking, how we process our feelings, process our emotions, and God wants us to process it, not to suppress it, not to keep it there and be always a stumbling block in our thinking. At the end of it, this book, Habakkuk gets his answer. He praises God. He's no more complaining. Chapter 3 is about praise, right? Or to God. So when we have a question and we don't have an answer, we wonder why is God like that? Check the Bible. Often you will find the reasons. But if you can't, then ask God directly. Right? That's the beauty of us as Christians. We have a personal relationship with God, which means we can ask God. Don't be afraid to do that. Often when something goes wrong, you just go to your quiet time and say, God, I don't understand why. Can you show me? Can you tell me why? And God often answers either through helping you find a passage of scripture, or God uses, uses a wise man to explain to you, or God shows some circumstances and answers your question, right? That's what we call a personal relationship with God. It's not like far away, we have no rights to Him. We have absolute rights to come humbly and confidently. That's the balance, right? Reverently, but confidently. He's our Abba, Father, just as we respect our Father, we respect our God, but we can ask Him. All right? So basically, this is how we have to look at the book of Habakkuk, and it gives us a new view of God, that He's a loving Father. He allows us to come to Him so boldly. All right, chapter 1 is basically an interrogatory prayer. Interrogatory means questioning. This is what I just said. We can question God. And let's look at it. Since it's a very short book, we can do again what I call a chapter uh, Bible study, not a book Bible study. And we can go quite quickly through, which I love to do, but we we'll never have time when it's a lot of chapters, three chapters. We can do it in our allotted time. Now look at chapter 1 and verse 2 to verses 4, right? To verse 4. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction, violence are before me. Strive contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is a complaint. He says, God, I, why? Why do you allow me to see all this violence? See all this quarreling. Everybody's quarreling. Citizens are quarreling with one another. Families are quarreling. Children are arguing with their parents. And then, you know what? The people who are wrong are the ones that get the advantage. 
Why do you do nothing, God? You know, I, I'm sure when you go to places where you see all this oppression of the poor, always in perpetual debt, children hardly having enough to eat, the rich just living it up, flaunting their wealth. And then you begin to ask, God, why? Why? Why are you not doing something? All right? So that was the complaint of Habakkuk. Let's see God's answer. Right? Chapter five, uh, chapter one, verses five and six. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march to the breadth of the earth to cease dwellings not their own. Whoa. Chapter the, beginning, the chapter begins by Habakkuk saying, God, you're doing nothing. Just leave it like that. God said, I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to do something. Can't you see I'm raising up the Babylonians? You see, the Babylon at the time was a rising power very fast. Assyria was a declining power. And Babylon was just conquering with their scorched earth policy. The Babylonians used this method not just impaling a few people to terrify the nations, but God used the Babylonians to conquer, and in their conquering, they killed everybody, the plants, the everything, the animals, scorched earth, leave nothing behind, so that the next city will say, surrender, don't fight. We're not going to be like this, right? That saves them a lot of having to fight the Babylonians, they terrified people. God said, can't you see I'm already raising up somebody? You, you said I'm not doing anything, right? Hey, I'm raising up the Babylonians. Can't you see that? This will shock you, but I'm raising up the Babylonians. You say I do too little, I'm going to do something. Okay? So God does answer Habakkuk, but not in the way he anticipated. That's very, very common. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than His ways, our ways. His span of doing things, His program is much longer than our program. All right? So Habakkuk now is like taken aback. Oh my goodness, why did you open my big fat mouth and ask for trouble? Okay? Now, one principle here we learn is that God often uses one evil nation to destroy another evil nation. When that evil nation then becomes too evil, he raises up another evil nation to destroy this evil nation. And when this new conqueror becomes more and more evil, he raises another one to conquer it. We've seen that over and over again. Empires come, empires go, empires get corrupted. It's like men, it's like kings, same thing. Succession, all right? And men always looking for that king that will help us, that priest that will help us, that prophet that will help us, that kingdom that will save us. But at the end of it all, none of them, none will ever satisfy us. That's what 
all this. You see, king after king, you're quite tired of reading of the kings. Now we're in the time of kingdoms falling. Quite tiring to, to, to read it. But that's the goal of it for God to tell us, why are you looking for the next kingdom? It's going to be like this. Look for the eternal kingdom, for the everlasting king, right? For the everlasting prophet, for the everlasting priest, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. All right. Anyway, so God's just doing what he's been doing. Habakkuk obviously is not a great thinker of the past, not a great uh, Bible scholar, <laughs> all right? He just complains what he saw, you know? We all have this little tunnel vision and what we see, we think we see everything. We're like we're super smart, like we have to teach God something. That's our character. God, don't you see this? God said, don't you see the bigger thing, <laughs> right? So now he's complained, okay? Number two, his first complaint, you didn't do enough. Now his complaint number two is you do too much now, okay? Let's look at uh, complaint number two from Habakkuk. Let's look at verses 12. And verse 13, when God, Habakkuk heard that God's going to raise up the Babylonians now, you mean they're going to come? All right. Israelites are wicked, right? I mean, they, they beat their wives and they cheat the poor. But you're going to raise someone more wicked to fix these wicked Israelites? Oh, now here, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Wow. <laughs> Suddenly, Habakkuk said, hey, hey, God, God, wait, wait, wait. I know I complain about Israelites being wicked, but do you know Babylonians are more wicked? You're going to use them to, to whack the wicked Israelites? Aren't they going to be more wicked? Aren't you of purer eyes? Aren't you the holy God? How come you allow evil men to do these evil things? <laughs> All right. All of a sudden, this uh, Habakkuk is... Uh, uh, Arguing with God again, complaining. I thought your eyes are holy. You use unholy people. I thought your eyes don't like to see evil. You use these people to commit horrendous evil, butchering people. Wow, Israel just slapped their wife. Now they come and slaughter our babies and smash babies against the wall. Huh? Are you the holy God who allows this? Right? So we see his, this is his complaint number two. Now, now, God, this is too much, right? You're holy, right? You know, this verse is very often, right, used in the, in by preachers. You who have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. All right, this is used, preachers like to pull this text out and say, you know, God is of purer eyes, he doesn't, Look at evil. That's a that's a lie. God looks at evil every day. You mean he doesn't look at evil? He looks at evil, he looks at good, he looks at everything. His pure eyes does look at evil. He sees every rape, he sees every murder, he sees it clearly. He doesn't say, Oh, I don't want to look at that. 
He looks at it in detail. Right? So this is often taken out of context by preachers. I mean, it's part of life, you know. We, we like to take what we like to take and make God say what we want to say, right? So here we see Habakkuk now complaining. And let's see what these Babylonians would do. Let's look at verse 15. Mm. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, Babylonians, eh? He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his drag net. So he rejoices as in and is glad. Can you imagine a picture of a fisherman dragging his net in and filled with fish? Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? How poetic this, right? Habakkuk says, God, the Babylonians, take people like fishermen catching fish you know have you ever seen fish in a net you don't feel a lot of sympathy for fish it's funny you know if i were to catch a mammal you know say a deer and then you have to kill the deer you feel somewhat hard even a pig it's hard to slaughter a pig or even a chicken but you know, somehow when you catch a fish, it's like nothing. I've seen very good Christians catch a fish, out of that, slam the fish on the ground. In fact, you go to market, they often whack fish with a flat of a, of a knife to slam the fish dead. Uh, nothing. Nobody says, don't do that. Imagine taking a, a, a chicken, you know, slam it on a wall and kill the chicken. Imagine the the guy in the market selling chicken that way. Hey, they don't kill chickens that way. It's cruel, man, friend. Don't do that. All right? But fish, nobody seems to feel for it. Maybe it's cold-blooded or whatever. I don't know. But I, I used to see that and, you know, it's like nothing. This is what cruel men do to other men. They don't see them as men. They don't. They're just like fish. Catch plenty. I'm rich. I have more to eat, more to sell. Slave traders never saw humans as men. Colonialists didn't see natives as men. Hitler didn't see the Jews as men. They were just like fish. Six million in a gas chamber. Yeah. If I have to sacrifice the British, I have to sacrifice one million Indians, you know, to starvation or hundred million Indians of starvation. That's, that's no problem. We'll take the green and bring it to Mother England for 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 the English to live better, you know. Never we sell opium to the to the Chinese, you know, and they all become addicts and starve to death and it's okay. They're not humans. Right? They don't say that. 
But we don't say to the fish, you're not a living creature, you don't have feelings. We don't do that, but we just... Okay, so here we see the evil of the human heart when we can take advantage of people easily, as the Babylonians could easily conquer other people, then we don't see them as fellow human beings, right? So when I read this, it's like, it tells me, wow, all over the world it's like that. You bomb people, you use drones, you kill them. They're not like humans. It's okay. It's okay. They're just whatever. All right? So, we see here a very, very sad uh, scene, okay? Now, let's go to chapter 2 now. When, when the Habakkuk complains and God said, uh, okay, I'll send the Babylonians and, and Habakkuk then says, uh, I will take my stand, chapter 2, verse 1, at my watch post, station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. I will complain to God. I say, how can you use more wicked people to punish Israelites? I know Israelites are wicked, but you can't do that. But God said, I'm going to do that. They're going to take you like fish. Huh? And so Habakkuk in protest, he said, I'm going to watch now. You say you're going to do it? Really? You, the holy God, are going to do this thing? This horrible thing, I'm going to stand on the watchtower and see whether you really do it. I call your bluff. So he went up to the watchtower, stands there and says, where's the Babylonians? God will never do that. How can God do that, the holy God? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. I told you, write it down. Make it plain on tablets. It's not going to change. Put it on clay tablets. Write that God said the Babylonians. I will raise up the Babylonians. So he may run who reads it. Now this who may run who reads it could be read either way. I'm not sure. The one who reads that Babylonians are coming, are going to come. He can run away. Better run fast. Or it can mean that with these tablets, right, written down with the prophecy of God, unchanging, written on clay tablets, you can't erase. People, messengers are going around and tell the people, hey, the Babylonians are going to come, repent, right? So it could mean either, right? The word, the word that, so he may run who reads it. Is it the, the messenger running with, the, with it as he reads it? Or is it the person who reads it and runs away? Don't know. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He tells Habakkuk, God tells him, no need to stand there. It will surely come, but not so fast. It will come in my time. See, this is again our struggle we got. We are not only short-sighted, we have short time frames to see things done. Because we only live 70 years, 100 years, right? Not eternity like God. So God tells him, it's going to come. I guarantee you that. Okay. Now, verse 4 is so commonly used and it's probably the most quoted scripture during the Protestant Reformation. Luther made this 
the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. This is talking about Babylonians. But the righteous shall live by his faith. All right? So we see a contrast here. But the second part of it, the righteous shall live by his faith, was used by Luther as the rallying cry against the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church's salvation is by works. You do certain things, you get the merit from God, you add it to what Christ did, and then you get saved. But Luther said, no. The righteous will live by faith. Simple faith in the cross. Simple faith, no works. All right? If you want to be right with God, live by faith in what Christ did at the cross. Finish work at the cross. That's it. Works will follow. You are saved by faith alone. But that faith is not alone. That faith you have in Christ will result in works. That's a cry of Luther. But actually, if you read the context here, it's quite different. It's saying that, though you don't see them coming yet, you just have to believe that God will punish you. God will punish you. You have to have faith that when God says it, it will come. Whether you stand the watchtower and see nothing. But if God says it, even you cannot see the Babylonians coming, it will come. Righteous people, the right way to live with God is to know whatever he says, believe. All right? That's basically the context of this verse. Right? It's not about justification by faith. It's about living day by day, trusting what God says, not trusting what your eyes see. We don't live by sight, we live by faith. Righteous people shall live by their faith, not by their eyeball sight, right? That's what the context is. But again, you see, that is how Bible reading, Bible preaching is today, okay? Anyway, enough said. Okay, so here we are in chapter 2 and we see how uh, all right, let's look at verse 5 and verse 6 and see what's going to happen. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, place of the dead, departed, departed dead as Sheol. Okay, the Jews believe all dead people go to this, this pit, right? Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Alright, so it is the nature of man who greed of man, bottomless greed of man. The billionaire wants more. No billionaire says, ah, enough. 50 billion? Why not? 55 billion? Why not? 500 billion? Alright, so it's a bottomless pit greed. They greed, they collect more. Right? There are more employees, there are more people to exploit, they got more people to sell the services to, whatever. They just keep 
customer base is more my revenue is more all right it's a bottomless pit like shield you know you can keep throwing dead bodies in and shield never gets full right but the problem is shield the more you throw in you don't get more good stuff you get more dead bodies <laughs> all right so it's like people you know uh, who have more and more money it gives them more and more problems families that won't siblings quarrel they don't talk to their brother their sons don't talk to one another all the money does is it brings more misery to the families but you know just like these idiot babylonians who who bring more and more corpses and throw into sheol all right and think they are filling it with riches don't realize they're filling it with corpses and people who have more and more money don't realize they're filling their families with more and more problems okay if you read the family feuds of rich families okay super rich i'm not super, super rich right you can just see this played out in the guy who's making money never stops having enough and then the families never stop having quarrels over the corpses in there all right so we're seeing a lot of human nature here and let's go on and read huh? in chapter two where are we now in chapter two okay verse five and verse six then we see the wars okay the wars a war is a curse okay there are a lot of wars you war to him in chapter six shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long who loads himself with pledges will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake will make you tremble then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you when you plunder people you can kill all one day they will the remnant who are not killed will get back at you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them verse 9 woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm you see many people get more and more money thinking the more money i have the more secure my future will be their security is in their money all right funny parts the rich people don't know they are often the attraction for attack all right when i go to the mission field i people have asked me how do you go in the mission field you go to all kinds of strange places since you were for 30 years and how come nobody has harmed you so far i say of course it's god's protection but you have to do your part all right you have to dress very normal for me it's difficult i'm taller than most people in the poor communities i go to all right i'm fairer skinned than most of them but then i have to dress as simple as i can drag the simplest little bag i can you know wear the simplest clothes buy the cheapest watch all right and then i'm not a target for i mean if you want to rob somebody I rob somebody who doesn't seem to have much to rob right 
But the more you have, the bigger a target you become. And rich people think their wealth is their security. They don't realize their wealth is their attraction for people to attack them, whether it's corporate attacks, whether it is sabotage attacks, whether it is uh, whatever, all right, blackmail, whatever. I don't know. Okay? So they think it's their security, all right? This is, of course, the, the perverse thinking of fools, right? <clears throat> Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. So God says, you know, people just fill themselves with all this, this so-called security and wealth and possessions. All of that will come to nuts. This verse, verse 14, For the earth, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It, comes, it seems to be out of place here. It's talking about people gathering themselves, filling themselves houses with wealth and security and, and possessions. And then God said, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <laughs> Something like out of the blue. He's basically saying one day all that is going to disappear. Everything you collect. I mean, honestly, the day you die, naked came you into the world, naked shall you return. You can't carry one cent with you. Right? Not a toothpick can you carry with you. And everything is gone. But you know what? The earth shall always be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Man's wealth evaporate the dust. God continues forever. Alright? Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Verse 15. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. People make others drink so that they will live shamefully. They make women drink so they can rape them or do bad things to them. Alright? To gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Sounds quite crude, you know. The Bible sounds quite crude. You drink, you want to make people naked? Strip them? One day you drink, you will be naked and stripped. You will expose yourself. Alright, because the drunkard doesn't know what he's doing. Right? So, again, it just shows the folly of man. Finally, in the end of verse 2, he says, verse 18, What profits an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, the teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him, he says to a wooden thing. Awake to a silent stone. Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is another verse very, very popular. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is often used in preparing people for worship. But if you see the context of this, quite different. All right? I'm not saying you can't use this verse, but it's quite different. It contrasts how the Babylonians would turn to their idols in their time of need. 
pleading idols to help me. And said the dumb idols, they have, cannot speak. They can't teach you anything. Right? But for us, we just know God is there. Always there. Keep silence. Just be still. And know that he's on the throne. That is the best message of all. That's the best message of all. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All right? You want to get a lesson from God in the midst of all the trouble? Lord, why this? Lord, why that? Give me an answer. You know what's the best answer? God's still not the throne. You know, when I'm in trouble, I, I always say, all right, God is still on the throne and he remembers his own. That's all I need to know. What he's going to do next, I don't need to know. Why is it happening around me? I don't need to know. If he's on the throne, he's in control. God is still on the throne. And he remembers his own, me. That's all I need. You know, after this, chapter 3 becomes very different. Chapter 2 is like complaining. Right? Look at chapter 3. And if you have time, read chapter 3. And it's no more. God, why you do this? God, why you allow the violence in Jerusalem? Ah, no, God, why you allow the Babylonians to come? Oh, God, why are these people always making people drunk? Oh, and these people capturing people like fish? Uh, uh, Habakkuk is, is complaining, complaining, and suddenly he says, Oh, idiot, stop it. God is on the throne. Let all the earth keep silence, including let Habakkuk's big fat mouth keep silence before God. And then chapter 3 is no more a complaint. Chapter 3 begins, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigeonok. Shigeonok is a musical term. Chapter 3 is no more about complaint. It's a song of praise. You see the word salah, salah. Salah is like end of a chorus of songs. Pause. Alright? Like we have to sing, alright? We take a break when the next chorus we sing, then we think that. So chapter 3 is a song of praise. Okay, so you see chapter 1 was interrogatory prayer. Why God? Chapter 2, you know, it's like preaching. They do this, they do this, they do this. God, do you know? And then chapter 3 is, after he said, let all the earth keep silence, he just starts to sing about the wonderful things that God has done for Israel in the past. I don't need to read it. It's very flowery, suddenly like, wow, God, you did amazing things for us in the past. He remembers, he trembles at God's past action, tremble in, in amazement, not tremble in fear. All right, so what have you learned from this? You learned that God still on the throne. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. But we can trust our God. From what we've seen in the past, how he dealt with Israel, how he delivered them, how he showed his power, we can trust him for the future. 
to look back at how God's been good to us. In the midst of fear now, I don't know whatever fear you have. He said, he saw me through all that. I thought I would die. No, he didn't. He delivered me. He saved me. Opened my eyes. Then he can do it again. All right? And let's end with chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. Right, so 1 to 16 is looking back at the past, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master, the stringed instruments. This is all. So he ends with saying, it's all this is to the choir master. We're going to sing this. Now, if you look at verse 17, it appears like, He's describing the scorched earth policy of the Babylonians after they whack Israel. They whack Jerusalem. There's nothing left. Zero. Even the animals are dead. The plants are gone. Burned. But you know what? Even when that happens, I will rejoice in the Lord. He knows what he's doing. His plan is bigger than this immediate crisis. Okay? And I went, I like that. It says, verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deers. He makes me trap in my high places. You know, the deer or the mountain goat, they all could go up to these little, little ledges on the, on the hills and mountains. It's so tiny a ledge. You, you and I stand there, we'll shiver and fall down because we'll be terrified. I, I, I might lose my balance and fall. But you know, these mountain deer, or they just climb up, climb up. Little, little space, just enough for their little feet. And they'll just climb up. Totally stable. You know, and even when there's almost nothing around us, and everything's taken up for us, we just enough to stand on one feet, one, one leg. And you know God's still on the throne. You will be stable. You won't be shaky. You won't fall. Alright? So I hope you see this. It's kind of poetic, but it's beautiful. You know, we always complain, God, why like that? God, why like that? Right? And then we realize God has a bigger plan. But we don't need to know the plan. God's plans are higher than our ways. Our minds can't figure it out. But we just know He's in his holy temple, still on the throne. He remembers his own. Keep silence. Rest. Let your feet stand and be still and know that he is God. All right? So what is Habakkuk for? Habakkuk is going to tell us life is full of problems. Life is full of injustice. Wicked men are everywhere. Part of life in this world, sinful world. Why are, you, why, are you, why are you perplexed? Genesis already told you. In the sweat of thy brow, you'll eat your bread. Agony, sadness is your life. But you know what? God has a great redemption plan for us. 
who trust in Him, the just, who wait for God, all right, who know whatever is around us by simple faith in the promises of God. We have an eternal kingdom. These kingdoms, wicked kingdoms will come and be replaced by another wicked kingdom. God allows that. But that's not the end of the story. That's part of the story. You and I will be, if we have faith in Christ, we will be at the end of the story in the great eternal kingdom with the eternal king in eternal righteousness, justice, right? Where the Garden of Eden, not what we saw here, nothing left, scorched earth, no. The Garden of Eden, renovated, version 2, will be waiting for you and me. God has a plan for you and me. His plan is in this book. And yet, we will not see that plan, right, until the appointed time. God is in, not in a hurry. God is showing himself and bringing in the Gentiles and eventually the Jews. And you and I, at the end, will see this beautiful story. In the meanwhile, enjoy the beautiful book. God bless you.